Well, influences on the heart, influences upon the heart, that's going to be our topic this morning. Week one, we looked at the creation of the heart, how God and the Genesis narrative is going to form Adam out of the clay, breathe his breath, his life into him, and he's going to become a living creature. He's going to take a rib from Adam's side, going to form Eve out of that rib, and then in the same way, breathe life into her. And so we looked at just, yeah, just the, what the scripture teaches about the creation of the inner person within this outer person, inseparably joined together, inseparably united until death, where our bodies go to the ground, our souls depart to be with the Lord if we're in Christ, someday to be raised in body and glorified and reunited to dwell with God forever. And then we looked at the devotion from the heart. What does God really want? What is he after? Well, he's after a people who worship him in spirit and in truth. He doesn't just want our outward forms of religion, our outward behavioral practice, but devotion from the heart, worship from the heart, a heart that loves the Lord their God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then last week we looked at the problem of the heart, that what God wants from us is our whole entire being, the devotion of the inner person that comes outward through our bodies and through everything we think, feel, say, and do. And yet, because of indwelling sin, because of being born into sin, it's the last thing we want to give. It's the thing above all things we want to withhold from God. We'd much rather do some physical thing. We'd much rather just do some outward practice than actually offer him a heart of thanksgiving, of gratitude, of devotion, of worship. So we looked at the problem of the heart. Then what we're going to do this week is look at influences upon the heart. And even if we return, well, let me pray for us, then we'll jump in. Let me pray first. Well, Father, we do thank you that you are a God who speaks, a God who reveals, a God who declares to us the truth about who you are, about what you are doing in this world, the truth about who we are, about what we truly need in this world. And so we pray that you would once more yeah, teach us from your word. May your spirit humble our hearts and open our hearts to receive what you have declared. And that in believing, we would be changed and transformed and we would love you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. That we would love one another as ourselves. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, if we refer, return to that case study that we started with last week of Charles Whitman and who... Yeah, 1966, had gone to his mother's house, taken her life, gone home, taken his wife's life before going to the University of Texas and ascending that clock tower with all his weapons and murdering a great number, I think it's 14 people there on the campus of UT and beyond the campus, injuring like 31. And there are many influences that we could say were, were going on in his life at that time. Many things that were not necessarily it's the cause of his behavior, but influencing it. They did do an autopsy, and they did find a, a glioblastoma tumor in his brain near the amygdala. And so we have to go, okay, that was influencing him in some way that had an effect. His father was an emotionally and physically abusive man, and he grew up under that. So we go, okay, that had to have been some kind of influence on him. He was trained as a sniper by the U.S. Marine Corps and then discharged without a whole lot of accountability, without much follow-up. He did own an arsenal of weapons at the time. Yeah, the newspaper and journal articles wouldn't have mentioned it, but there were certainly demons involved. 
Had to be. As John 8:44, where Jesus says, the devil was a murderer from the beginning. Anytime we really see murder and mass murder happening, you have to go, okay, there's, there's demons involved in this. This is what the devil does. So though we can't say for sure that demons were the root cause of his actions, we can assume, okay, they played a role. The Bible gives us this assumption that we don't wage war against flesh and blood, but against rulers, principalities, forces of evil in heavenly places. And so our hearts, in other words, don't exist in a vacuum. That's what this time is going to be about, thinking about, is we're not just ethereal spirits floating through the cosmos, but we are physically embodied creatures. We are socially embedded creatures. We are spiritually embattled creatures. And yet our God and Savior is sovereign in all of that. His hand of providence is moving through all of that, authoring, guiding all of that, always using them for his glory and for our good, for the good of his people. So that's what I want us to think about together from scripture this morning is all these various influences on the human heart. And there's kind of three reasons I want us to do it. And one is so that we don't flatten human existence to a merely spiritual existence, which is very tempting. It's just to go, you know what? All that body stuff just doesn't matter. All the society stuff doesn't matter. Only the spirit, only the soul, only the inner person matters. So I want us to avoid sort of flattening human existence that way. Because when God created Adam and Eve, he's not like, well, I might as well give him a body. It doesn't matter. I'll just do it anyway. Now, what we see through the line of scripture, know that this, the body matters. Society matters. These things matter. But then number two, so that we understand those influences upon our hearts in a way that helps us interact with them biblically and faithfully. Because I think when we don't think biblically about the body, about society, about demons, about we end up interacting with them in a way that is not faithful to scripture. We end up giving them maybe more weight than they deserve or too little weight, which gets to the third reason I want us to think about this is so that we would assign those influences the proper weight, that we would see them as significant, but not overwhelming causes for who we are, not the overwhelming causes for why we think, feel, and act the way that we do. So influences upon the heart. I think that'll be the first section you have there in front of you in your notes. If you don't have a set of the physical notes and you want them, I think we've got them sitting out at the doors and at the the tables in the back. So the first three chapters of Genesis, we're going to observe the Lord creating a world and us, placing us in that world that is full of interacting pieces. So when God created Adam and Eve, he created them in physical bodies. He actually started with the physical body. He's going to form Adam out of the clay and then breathe inner person into him, breathe life into him. He also placed them in a social context. He placed them with one another. He even said, okay, it's not good for Adam to be alone, to be by himself. I'm going to give him a helper suitable for him. And then they're going to be able to procreate and children are going to be born. So there's a social context they're also living in. He also placed them inside a spiritual battle with Satan. I mean, we're just three chapters in, Genesis 3, and the devil's on the scene. The serpent is there talking to them, deceiving them, trying to tempt them to rebel. 
He was permitted to exert influence in their world. And so those are the three areas of influence I want us to think about this morning together. The physical body, the social world, and the spiritual war, beginning with the physical body. I like to say that the physical body, it's not just along for the ride. And the older you get, probably the more you feel that, right? I think you should feel it as a young person as well. You just may blow it off in a way that the older you get, the less you get to blow that off. Like the older you get, the more you have to think about, what do I have to do tomorrow before I do what I'm about to do today, right? Before I go on this long walk or this hike or do this physical activity, okay, do I need to be able to function tomorrow morning? And so the body is not just along for the ride. It's like if you're in a car and okay, that you're driving and there's somebody next to you that's screaming constantly at you. Some of you parents of young children actually don't have to imagine this. It was your world this morning coming in. And there's another person screaming at you. Well, now imagine if that person starts hitting you, starts clawing at your face or pulling your hair. Is that gonna affect how you drive? Is that gonna affect the experience of your driving? It will. And so that's one way to think about even the body, that it's, it's there, it can encourage you, it can help you, it can be a source of pleasure, or it can be a source of pain, it can scream at you. It can make driving very hard. We are physically embodied creatures. And this influences how we experience our world, how we express ourselves in the world. In other words, we can't even be having this conversation this morning without biochemistry happening, without your ears functioning in a certain way, without parts of your central nervous system relaying signals so that you can sort of experience and and hear the words and then begin to process words. Now, what we'll talk about as we go is it's not going to control the moral nature of what you think, of what you do, but it will certainly serve as a medium through which you experience conversation, experience life, experience people. It mediates our ability to hear, to remember, to process information, to respond with words and actions. Turn, if you would, to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Verse one, for we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, Paul's there referring to this body, this physical body, this tent that is our earthly home is destroyed. We have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. He's talking about, okay, there's, there's another tent, another home, another building we're gonna get, we're gonna inherit that wasn't formed from mud on earth It was created by God in a different way. For in this tent, this physical body, we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. If indeed by putting it on, we may not be found naked, meaning bodiless, just soul naked, where we're just the spirit existing only without an outer form. For while we are still in this tent, this physical body, we groan. Second time he has to say this being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, meaning not have a body at all, but that we would be further clothed, meaning clothed in a body that is glorified, not weak, not frail, not afflicted, so that what is mortal, this body that's gonna die, may be swallowed up by life, a body that doesn't die, a body that doesn't suffer. 
So we even see it here right there from Paul, just the honesty about, okay, this body afflicts us. This body is weak. What I would say, it's not that this body is sinful, as you know, Gnosticism in parts may argue, Buddhism may argue, different Eastern religions may argue, okay, that the body itself is sinful. The body itself is evil. And so then denying it is, and so that's not how the scripture thinks about the body. The body is weak. The body is frail. The body is afflicted. The body is cursed in the sense there'll be Genesis 3, pain and toil in what we do. But the body itself isn't the source of sin. The body desires pleasure. The body recoils from pain. But that's not itself morally wrong. But rather the body is an instrument. That's why Paul's gonna say things to the Romans like, you know, therefore give your body as instruments of what? What's the word he use? Of righteousness. Not instruments of what? Unrighteousness. So even there we see that there's a word that Paul uses for the body. It's an instrument. Either given over to righteousness or given over to unrighteousness. Yeah, in Genesis 3, 14 through 24, after the fall, after they rebel, God shows up and he curses serpent, Adam, Eve, creation. We're going to see the word pain twice applied to Eve in her experience of childbearing in Genesis 3.16. We're going to see the word pain once applied to Adam in his experience of daily labor. Words like, okay, thorns and thistles, sweat of your face. These are now going to be the experiences, Adam, in your world. So he's subjecting the creation to the due penalty of their error. And the day you eat of it, you'll die. You'll die spiritually, immediately, you'll start to die physically. And the whole creation will now groan with you under the weight of this curse. And that curse is gonna conclude with the promise of certain death. Once born, our bodies would begin their journey to death. And really Genesis 5, that is a great sobering reminder of this. You know that genealogy in Genesis 5 where Adam begot so-and-so, lived this long. Seth begot so-and-so. What does it say after the end of every one of their sentences? And he died. It's a chapter confirming God meant exactly what he said. In the day you eat of it, you'll die. It's not just a genealogy of life, it's a genealogy of death. And he died, and he died, and he died. In this tent, we groan, as we just read. So from allergies to cancer, from something as small as a hangnail to a compound fracture, from daily fatigue you're gonna feel to just outright collapsing, passed out, and exhaustion, from a twisted ankle to amputations, from influenza to pneumonia, from throwing out your back to quadriplegia, from mouth sores to scarlet fever, from brain injuries to a coma, dementia, thyroid problems, endocrine system problems, liver failure, dehydration, heart attacks, right, we could go on for days. That the body matters, it affects us, it's dying, it's weak, it's frail. And that pushes in on the soul, 
right? You don't wake up in the morning in pain and go, wow, this is great. It's tempting to be discouraged. It's tempting to be anxious about the body. It's tempting to be angry about affliction or pain in the body. It's tempting to actually let the the body take the driver's seat, which is some of what we're going to talk about not just this week, but next week when it talks about the primacy of the heart of it's one thing to say, okay, the body afflicts. It's another to say, okay, the body is in control. That's why Paul's going to say, I buffet my body and make it my slave, lest I preach the gospel and then go on to be disqualified. So he realized, okay, this body, it just wants what it wants. And if I just follow the desires of my body, meaning just for pleasure and to avoid pain, I won't actually live by faith. I won't sort of run the race that God's given to me. And so I've got to actually train my body. When my body says, hey, I want that, my inner person has to make a decision. Is it right? Is it wrong? Is it wise? Is it foolish? Is it honoring to God? Is it not honoring to God? Is it self-centered? Is it other-oriented? So our bodies suffer diversely. We don't all experience the same kinds of groaning, right? Everybody's bodies are different. The idea that one person's body tempts them to alcohol abuse more than another person's body, I think is a perfectly biblical idea. It doesn't mean there's a gene for alcohol abuse. But I would even say if someday someone were to find, hey look, there's genetic correlates to alcohol abuse, I'm still like, that still doesn't change the theology of the Bible. That still doesn't remove the effects of the inner person. It just means, okay, there's a way in which the body, this person's body, is more disposed to this than another person's body. That one person's body may be more disposed to anxiety than another person's body. One person's body more disposed to fatigue or lethargy than another person's body. It's just we live in a world that says, well, if you're more disposed, then the body is the cause. As opposed to, no, you're more disposed, which means you're more tempted. It still doesn't make it the cause. Some of what we'll talk about when we get to see all these pieces together is different parts of society put all their eggs in individual baskets, whether it's the body basket, the social basket, the demonic basket. We all experience the same kinds of groaning, but we experience it very differently. Romans 8, turn there with me if you would. Romans 8, 19. Where scripture says the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God, meaning for them being revealed with Christ in glory. Because they know when that happens, something's gonna follow. For the creation was subjected to futility. By who? By God, that's right, subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him, God, who subjected it. And he did it in hope, so that all those in creation would hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption, which I don't think, by the way, means necessarily just a bondage to sin as much as a bondage to decay, a bondage to the corruption of its nature and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Think about that, that the whole cosmos wants sort of the same glory that we have in Christ. They're longing for that day. 
that the creation would also be set free. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, meaning even if you're born again, even if you're united to Christ, you're still going to groan, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons. And what does he call it? The redemption of our bodies. And so even that idea that something in us longs for the body to be redeemed. Because Paul knows it's not redeemed right now. Now, is your, if you're in Christ, if your sins are forgiven, is your soul redeemed? Yes. You're forgiven. You're united to Christ. You're reconciled. But your body ain't there yet. The, this body, the outer form's decaying. The inner man's being renewed day by day. So it's going that direction. Your body's going that direction to go in the ground. And from that seed is going to come a glorified body that, Christ is going to, that God's going to make. The redemption of our bodies. Hurricanes, tornadoes, earthquakes, <clears throat> all part of the creation being subjected to futility. So whether bear attacks or shark attacks. So before Genesis 3, bears didn't attack. Sharks, you can just go out and swim with sharks. Swim with killer whales. No danger. Since the curse, they want to eat you. Or at least bite you. Try you. Spider bites, ant bites, sunburns, frostbite. All those testified, okay, something being wrong in the cosmos. I've shared the story before. It was, I can't remember when it was recently that I saw this beautiful flower. It was in the spring. I went and I picked it. I thought, wow, this smells great. And so I smelled it and immediately started sneezing and didn't stop for like three days. Like got like a sinus infection. I told the kids, I just got attacked by a flower. And it won, like it won. Like that's, something's wrong. Like I'm not supposed to be at enmity with this flower. It's not supposed to attack me. But it did, and I lost. It affects us. That's why I think even allergies are one of the great sort of statements of we're not in harmony with the creation. And even with my own body, right? Because allergies are your body thinking there's something alien to it that it needs to get rid of that it doesn't. So even in our own bodies, they're at war. Cells attacking other cells. Yeah, COVID-19 is our bodies being at odds with the rest of creation. And then this influences us. It influences how we think, how we live, how we relate. So we're not meant to ignore or deny the influence of these factors on our bodies nor the influences of our bodies on our experience of the world or our ability to express ourselves in the world. Any questions about the body part before we get to the social part? Well, secondly, our social world. We're not just physically embodied creatures, we're also socially embedded creatures. We're born into families and communities. We're born into relationships with, yeah, sort of a specific set of factors that are go into those, that we're born into families with depraved people, sinful people. And sometimes we experience those effects very directly. Other times we experience them very indirectly. 
Abel was murdered by his brother in Genesis 4. So we're just four chapters into the Bible and we have our first murder. One brother killing another. So Adam and Eve had to live under that grief and live with that grief. Okay, now we're, we've lost two sons, one to death, the other one to banishment. And do you think Eve felt a little guilty as a mom? I think Adam felt a little guilty as a dad. Like, who would have thought that the first real death they experienced after eating would be a child, their child's death? But yeah, that's all some of what the door that had been opened. And so if your father abandoned your home when you were three years old, that's going to affect you. It's going to influence you. You may be tempted to blame yourself, to wonder what you could have done to keep him around. You might be tempted to relate to other people with suspicions, to relationships with suspicion, always sort of waiting for the shoe to drop. You may be prone to keep others at a safe distance, or you might be tempted to cling more tightly to others, to control and manipulate, to keep them around. If your mother was verbally abusive or cruel, that will leave a mark on you. It will affect you. You might be tempted to yeah, pour yourself into your responsibilities, into your activities, into athletics, into academics, to use performance to avoid disappointing other people. Now, I keep, you hopefully notice I keep using the word tempted to. What the world will say, it will cause you to. This will cause you to be like this. I think it's important that we say, no, it will tempt you to. It might tempt you to be anxious, tempt you to be manipulative, tempt you to enter into relationships with suspicion. Temptations to insecurity, to rage, to self-pity. You may be tempted to avoid social relationships altogether. Sexual abuse affects us. You know, it assaults our dignity, our sense of self, our sense of well-being, of safety, of even being valued in the eyes of God. It tempts us to live in shame or guilt. Could tempt us to hate our bodies or punish our bodies, to hate sexual contact or even to seek it wrongfully. Temptation to promiscuity or living under an oppressive government or inside a community that rejects or scorns you. I mean, all those types of factors press upon the heart in unique ways. We're not living in a utopia. So, you know, I've said before, we're living in a jungle of sinners who are playing baseball with grenades. Like, that's sort of how it feels. At any moment, you're in this, and something could blow up. Something could go wrong. So sometimes we endure great suffering directly at the hands of our parents. Others of us grew up in homes where our parents were kind, patient, loving, for the most part. Some grew up in homes where Christ was not known, was not adored, was not spoken of. Others grew in homes where Christ was adored and trusted upon and proclaimed and, and that had effects. So parents and governments and marriages and children, these are all gifts from God but can all be sources of suffering. So there is a social embeddedness that matters, that influences us, that we have to take seriously. But there's also a spiritual war that we're in. We're also spiritually embattled creatures. Ephesians 6.12, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against spiritual forces of wickedness in heavenly places. Ephesians 
So Paul just says, just assume it. You're not just waging war against things you can see, against the physical realm, against the social realm, but against a spiritual realm. There are angels that are servants to those who will inherit salvation. They're there to help you. And there are fallen angels, demons, who are there to harm you. And so even in the book of Daniel, some of that curtain gets pulled back where Michael's talking about when he's talking to yeah, I've got to go and contend now with the prince of Persia. And it's in reference to the demon that is behind that throne and trying to influence that king to harm God's people. So you'll just get these little windows in scripture where, okay, behind the, the political struggle, behind the government struggle, behind the relational struggle with all the pieces, there's, there's angels and demons. Again, we can't see all that. And that's why Paul doesn't, when he, when he talks about what to do with it in Ephesians 6, it's therefore what? Put on what? The full armor of God. And then he sort of lists what that armor is and what that means. And so in some ways, God doesn't overcome. He says, okay, what's happening behind the scenes is complicated. There's more to it. You can't see it. But what I'm asking you to do is not complicated. Just pray more. Read scripture more. Trust me more. You know, and so you love how, okay, the problem is often complex. The answer he gives us is often very simple. Just put on that full armor. The story of Job is a clear answer, right? His, his body was struck. His social world was struck. Every meaningful area of his life became a source of pain, heartache, affliction. And yet behind all that was a devil, the devil who wanted to harm him, wanted to destroy him, wanted to incite, same with Adam and Eve, rebellion against God, wanted to incite in Job faithlessness disbelief, hatred toward God. The overall storyline of scripture proves this very point that we're not waging war against flesh and blood. From Genesis three all the way through Revelation 20, we see, okay, the struggle, the human struggles against all these malevolent, malicious forces of darkness in heavenly places. After being led by the spirit into the wilderness in Matthew 14, right, Jesus is gonna enter into a period of temptation with the devil. After 40 days, he's gonna be hungry, and at his weakest point, now Satan's gonna come and tempt him. Except he's not gonna sin, which is the good news for us, right? The hope of our salvation is that Christ didn't sin at the very spots where Adam did. So now, after inheriting Adam's sin nature, Adam's rebellion, okay, we can be, that sin can be imputed to Christ, paid for, born away. His righteousness can be imputed to us, and now we become the okay, offspring of Jesus rather than Adam. But the devil's involved. Satan put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot to betray Jesus. He put it into the heart of the religious leaders in Romans to put Jesus to death. In other words, all that suffering of Christ assumed physical forms, social forms, spiritual forms. And so that's why Hebrews can say he was tempted just as we are, but without sin. Jesus was afflicted in his body. Jesus was persecuted in his social world. Jesus was tried and by demonic forces and yet never sinned, prevailed. 
So in many ways, we cannot control some of these influences. I think that's important for us to see. You, you can't control, okay, the body God gave you. But there's ways, other ways in which you can control some of what that body does to you, right? That's why Paul can say, I buffet my body and make it my slave. You can't sort of control certain aspects of the endocrine system that you're given, but you can control your nutrition to some degree. You, you, okay, you can't control your metabolism rate that was sort of set for you. You can, however, walk and exercise that helps increase your metabolism rate. You can't necessarily control how disposed you are to fatigue and to exhaustion, but you can try to get to sleep at a decent hour and get enough rest each night. And so you see how we even we relate to our bodies. We relate to the social world. We can't control that we live in a society that's saturated with pornography and sexually illicit material. However, we are, by God's grace, given a degree of control over what places we go to, what sites we open up on the internet, what we view and watch and think about. So again, there's ways in which there's unavoidable oppression, but then ways in which the Bible's constantly saying, be careful what you let in. Be careful what you do with your body. And they would say things like, don't give the devil an opportunity. You remember, what's the context of that? Of not giving the devil an opportunity? Remember what he says right before it? Don't stay angry for long. Don't let the devil, don't let the sun go down on your anger. Which doesn't mean, okay, if you get angry at 10 o'clock or five minutes before sunset, you got five minutes. Nor does it mean, okay, if you get angry at eight in the morning, you get all day to stew on it. No, the point is, don't stay angry long. Because how many of us, if, okay, we're at our house, there's a knock on the door, we look out the window and see, and there's Satan on the front doorstep. Pretty obvious that's who he is. He doesn't look happy, doesn't look like he wants to come in and be an encouragement, and he's knocking on your door. How many of us go sort of just crack the door open and go, well, can I help you? Would we even want to do that? Let alone enough where it's this far, where enough for Satan to put his foot there. Because once he gets his foot in there, what can you not do? Okay, can't close the door anymore. And how many of us think about anger that way? Okay, I'm angry about something. And that's, here he is, Satan, he's knocking at the door. And am I going to respond in a way? Am I going to call to God for help? Am I going to ask him to give grace to whether it's to forgive or to cover a transgression or to humble myself or whatever it might be that needs to happen to deal faithfully with that anger? Or am I just going to stew on it? And just keep cracking that door a little more open. As Satan puts in his foot and slides in his shoulder and then wiggles through. And all the while we're thinking we can handle this, right? As if we can let him in the house and survive the encounter. Yet that's what bitterness does. It destroys us. That's what resentment will do. That's what staying angry, <clears throat> that's what will happen. So there's ways in which we can't control some things, but yet by God's grace, by Spirit's power, there's other things we can control. That's why Solomon can say in Proverbs 4.23, keep your heart with all vigilance, 
Guard it, is the idea. Be careful what you let in. Be careful what you dwell on, for from it flow the springs of life. We ought to think about that next time we're wanting to scroll around on social media or just watch the news. I mean, can we really handle much of it? That's why I think some of our pride is just exposed in how much of it we think we can handle. Yeah, I know most people can't handle much of this, but you know what? I can. I can just spend all this time out here on this stuff, intake all of this, and it not actually afflict, tempt, reshape the affections of my heart. Whereas if you're on something and watching it, reading it, and you just find yourself getting constantly angry, frustrated, provoked, it's like volunteering to get into a ring with the devil and just box for a little while and go, I think it'll be okay. And the devil's crafty. He dresses up as an angel of light. So that when you actually look in the ring where he's inviting you to come fight a little bit, he'll dress up as just a very friendly looking person who's just well-dressed, looks polished, educated. You think, okay, there's no way this guy's dangerous or whoever it is. And then then you step in the ring and he kind of unzips his pleasant outfit. And then you realize, oh, he's a monster. And he's about to take me to the mat. So all of us have to be aware of, okay, what can my body really handle? What can, in the social world, right? That's part of what Psalm 1 is about. How blessed is the man who doesn't walk in the path of sinners or stand in, what is it, the place of scoffers or sit in the seat of. Walk, stand, sit. Be careful who you're with is what he's getting at because that's going to affect you. Be careful the words that you're letting into your ears and into your heart. But he's going to say, no, blessed is the man who's, who's deli- who delights in the law of the Lord. And in his law, he meditates day and night. Think about that a minute. If we actually meditated on the word of God day and night, we just wouldn't have a whole lot of time to meditate on everything else. On the wisdom of the world, on the foolishness of the world, on all those things. And so... Yeah, there's a lot of it we can't control, but then there's another way in which, okay, the inner person is a gateway that's kind of a gatekeeper to how much more we put our bodies in front of, how much more of the social environments we do, and then how much of the devil's temptations do we actually voluntarily expose ourselves to, thinking that I'll be able to survive this, I'll be fine. Yeah, it was earlier this year, I was at a conference and yeah, John Piper was talking, preaching through some of First Thessalonians, Second Thessalonians and just talking about how God uses sanctification, uses suffering and pain to purge away sin, to conform us to Christ, to prepare us for the Lord's coming. In other words, that suffering is a gift that prepares us to see Christ when he comes. And so he said, so think about, and he usually said, so think about the kind of sin you're going to expose yourself to and volunteer for, knowing that you're going to have to suffer to burn that off, to prepare you. So I think the Super Bowl had just happened. So he just said, so yeah, those of you, if you watch the halftime show, you're going to have to suffer a lot to burn that off. And so to even, what, a, what an image that might be, just in the idea where, okay, that's from Second Thessalonians there, where it's talking about, okay, the house, you've got to suffer 
so that you're ready for his coming. And the point of that suffering is to, is to sanctify us, to burn away sin. And so how, just how much are we going to volunteer to indulge, knowing that, okay, that's going to have to get burned off? Right? We make that decision every Thanksgiving when we look at that food. All right, how many miles are we going to have to run to burn this pie off? You know, how many hours am I going to have to work all, all, to to address this, well, think even more spiritually. How much refining is gonna be needed to sanctify what I'm about to expose myself to voluntarily? So a lot of it is out of our hands. Some of it's in our hands. But yet thankfully, in it all, it's in God's hands. And so you'll see that second section there of just the sovereignty of God. Any questions about these influences we've hit so far? But in it all, through it all, over it all, is a God who is sovereign. You know, Lamentations 3, 37, who is there who speaks and it comes to pass unless the Lord has commanded it? What a great statement in preparing for election season, right? Who is it that speaks and it comes to pass unless the Lord commanded it? Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that both good and ill go forth? Is it not from God's mouth ultimately that all things are governed, both good and ill? Romans 8, 28, and we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. Do we know that? Paul says we know that. We, we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. If you're called according to his purpose, if you're set apart in Christ, if you're united to him, filled with the spirit, forgiven, adopted, everything in your life, every single little detail, past, present, future, will only be used always together for your good. So we can't always just take an individual ingredient and say, okay, I see exactly how this is for my good which is sometimes what we'll try to do, right? Some tragedy will hit, some pain, and we'll try to figure out, okay, how is this for my good? Well, no, it's not, it, it just gets put in the bowl with all the other ingredients and mixed all together, it will be for your good. So we can't always see it like a straight line in the moment. We're just meant to know it, to trust it, that God uses all those influences, all the stuff that happens to your body and in your body, all the stuff in your social world and relationships, all the stuff that he allows from the demonic realm, he mixes all that together in your particular furnace of sanctification and uses it for your good. You can always believe that all the time, no matter what it is. So that's why that chart you'll have there in your notes is sort of trying to get at that idea. That here we are, inner person, the heart, but physically embodied, socially embedded, spiritually embattled, yet a sovereign God who's enthroned in and through all of that. And there's different segments of society that sort of emphasize one area over the other, right? So there'll be, I think some, even in some churches that will emphasize, as I said earlier, only the heart. Like the inner person, it's the only thing that matters. There's even certain branches of biblical counseling that I think lean in that direction. Like none of this other stuff really matters that much. We don't really need to talk about it much. It's just only the inner person we need to think about. But then others, they put all their eggs in the basket of the body, 
Where might you see that happening? What segments of society? What's that? So psychology is going to, some branches will get it, okay, it's the body. But especially psychiatry will, more than anywhere, the medical side of that. Yeah, I think in different areas of the medical community, you'll see it. Anywhere where naturalism is sort of the ruling principle of the day, where nature's all there is. Psychology tends to put a lot of emphasis on a sort of a shallower version of the heart, where, okay, it's the inner, something inside, but it's mental processes, it's personality, and won't really think about the heart the way scripture thinks about the heart. But then the body, you'll see yeah, different aspects of the medical community, of the psychiatric community. Say, okay, the body's where all the action is. This is the causal center of the person. This is why they think, feel, and act the way that they do. How about the socially embedded part? Politics, for sure. Where they think, okay, it's all about who's running the show governmentally. It's all about elected officials. It's all about policies. Sociology puts a lot of the eggs in this basket. Marriage and family therapy type of theories put it all there. It's, it's the family is causal. Childhood upbringing is causal. Those attachment relationships are causal. So attachment theories, you know, put just the weight. So this is the causal center of the person. Behaviorism, right? Social conditioning. That you are this way because you are conditioned to think this way. Conditioned to feel this way. Conditioned to act this way. How about the spiritual embattledness? Where do you see, who puts all the eggs in that basket? Spiritual the spiritual embattledness, like the demonic part, like you'll see there are different approaches to life that put all the weight there. So I'd say some branches of charismatic theology, we'll put it there, deliverance ministries, right? You cast out the demon of anger. You cast out the demon of lust. You cast, and so all the weight is put the reason you think, feel, and act the way you do is because of demons and angels, where just so much of the weight is put there. You'll have others that, you know, just who are fatalistic in their view of God's sovereignty that may put, in a way, the right sort of weight on God enthroned and sovereign, but, but really don't pay any attention to anything else. So it's just, well, whatever God wants to do, he's going to do. Might as well just... Whereas what the scripture gives us is all this is harmonized beautifully. We'll talk a lot more about that next week, about sort of the primacy of the heart and the, and the harmony of all these pieces working together. Which brings us to the gospel. Romans 8, 18 through 30. If you want to turn back there for a moment, you may still be there. Where Paul says in verse 18, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. So all the suffering of the body, of the social world, of the spiritual battle, it's not worthy of comparison to what God's gonna produce from all this in the end. That's a really encouraging statement. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. Creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope 
that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the body groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption of sons, the redemption of our bodies. That's what we read before. Listen how he explains it. For in this hope we are saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? Which is an interesting statement, right? Everybody seems to hope for what they see. Like this year, if anything, is evidence that the temptation to hope in what you see. But Paul's saying that isn't really hope. If you can see it, then that's not the kind of biblical hope the gospel's talking about. But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. And again, there's a great word for what life in the body is. It's weakness. For we don't know, know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us, and I love this, with groanings. Same word. We're groaning. As we pray, what does the Spirit do? He intercedes with groaning. Too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. The Spirit is sort of your prayer translator in heaven. So you pray, and the Spirit's like, all right, Father, here's, here's what he really meant. Yeah, I know he was just asking for this. This is what he meant to say. This is really what's, what he's after, what he wants. I love that. You have a little intercessor there. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. It's the end in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers, so that Christ would be the firstborn, and then many brothers would come of him. And those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified, declared righteous before him. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. So it's just one of those passages that you can go to that we see that all those circles we looked at in that chart, God's going to redeem all of it. God's going to reconcile for us all of it. God's going to destroy the old and give new in all of those areas. Because in glory, we will have physical bodies, but they will be glorified physical bodies. There will be a social world in heaven full of other people and persons, and, but it will be glorified and perfect. There will be angels in heaven. There will be a spiritual realm in that way in heaven, but it will only be the angels who have served the Lord faithfully all these millennia. And there will be a a God who is still sovereign, still enthroned, still good. So we will inherit a new body in a physical environment. We will inherit a new social environment. We will inherit the kingdom of the Son where Satan and his hosts are not permitted. They're cast out. And so the gospel promises to to redeem all of it. What the gospel promises more than anything right now is to redeem the inside of you, to transform you, to renew you. So I think there's implications for this. Any other questions or comments before we get to implications? I think one is awareness. I think that's one reason why we want to teach on this. It's just so that we would be aware that we would take our body seriously, take our social world seriously, take the spiritual battle seriously. They, they're real. They influence you. And so what it means is we should, by God's grace, steward our bodies well. 
they're already weak, we probably don't want to make them weaker in the way we steward our bodies. Good rest matters. Nutrition is helpful. Fresh air, taking a walk, drinking enough water. Whatever it is that can limit the negative influences upon the body and sort of increase the positive influences on the body. Friendships matter. There are people who will encourage you to Christ. There are people who will not. They'll encourage you away from Christ. Doesn't mean, okay, you avoid all these people. It just means, okay, no, these are those that I'm there to minister Christ to in missions, not to let in to influence and shape my world. You have to take that seriously. You have to be careful what counselors you surround yourself with. You can just go through the Bible and see all the stories where somebody listened to foolish counsel and followed it. Never goes well. Rehoboam's going to wreck a whole kingdom over it. Ignore the counsel of the older men that had been there with Solomon. Take the counsel of his young buddies who grew up with him. And God's going to use all that to split the kingdom. And so it matters what voices we let in, what people are influencing us. There's music and movies and media that stirs up your affection for Christ and those some things that are going to damper and harm your affection for Christ. So part of the idea of awareness, are you aware of that? Are you being thoughtful about, okay, what are the things that I let in that help me love Christ? What are the things that come in that actually lead me away from Christ? That I will go days without thinking about Christ. Think alertness is an implication. You know, Job made a covenant with his eyes to not look lustfully upon women because it affected him. It affected his soul, his relationships. It was itself sin but it also would entangle him in a way that he didn't want his affections entangled. We talked about it earlier, Psalm 1, 1 and 2. Blessed is a man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. You know, Peter's going to say, be alert, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. So the idea, are we alert to that? Are we on guard with that? Hope is another huge, I think, implication of what we've been talking about. Just when Paul said in Romans 8, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. That the whole creation was subjected to futility, but in hope. So we would hope in what God is doing in remaking the world, that we would hope in what Christ is accomplishing and establishing his kingdom, that we would hope in getting a new body, hope in getting a whole new social environment, hope in being in a new heavens and new earth where the devil and his angels are thrown to the lake of fire and not permitted, where no evil thing is allowed. So we're, in other words, we're not meant to hope in all of that happening right now. We're meant to hope that, okay, God has our heart, he's guarding our heart, he's transforming our heart, and he's gonna transform all that other stuff as well. So awareness of it, alertness to it, hope in him through it. We've got some time left just for discussion or comments or questions, just anything at all anybody wants to say.
Yeah, so the question is, when we were thinking about the idea of sanctification or really suffering, burning off the dross, sort of burning off sin in our life. And how do we compare that to, okay, suffering and pain is punishment for our sin. When I think of the word punishment, I tend to think of, okay, for the Christian at least, okay, that's what happened at the cross. Our sin was punished. Our sin was borne away. When I think now then, what I think of Romans 12 being a better picture of what God is doing with our sin now, where it's discipline, it's chastening, it's conforming us to the image of Christ, it's sanctifying and refining us. And so I think, same with condemnation, that condemnation is no longer a word that applies to Christians. Romans 8, there's no condemnation, none of it, for those who are in Christ Jesus. But you read the rest of Romans 8, and okay, God is allowing suffering in our life, and so it's clearly not about condemnation, it's sanctification, it's being conformed to his image. So I think that's a really important distinction to make, that now, when, even if we feel there's a direct connection, okay, I've made this decision, I've walked in this way, and now here are these consequences that are really painful that have come of it, where there's a clear line we can draw between our sin and this pain, even then as a believer, in the context of Romans 8 and other, in, in Hebrews 12, we're going, okay, this is my heavenly father disciplining me, or chastening me, sanctifying me, conforming me to the image of his son, not condemning me, not punishing me for, for something that has already been put on Christ. So I think that ends up being a really important dis- distinction so that now in all the suffering, and sometimes we, I find we can't draw a direct line. There's just suffering in our life. And like in the case of Job, you can't just say, oh, here's what you did and here's the result. No, no, clearly God is doing something else through it all, refining faith, growing faith. But for sure, through the Bible, we get that image of, okay, a a refining furnace is the place where God purifies our faith, 1 Peter 1. And so whatever it is the the pain and suffering is doing, we can be assured he's doing that. He's refining us. Does that get it what you're hearing? Other comments, other questions or thoughts? Yeah, in terms of there's a temptation said kind of in the medical community uh, or even to see Jesus and the gospel as therapeutic. And by that, I mean, it, this will heal your body. Even this will heal the external if you believe the gospel, which I, I think is very much how prosperity gospel thinking leans. It's okay, if you'll trust Jesus and follow him, your cancer will get healed or this tumor in your brain would go away. So for Charles Whitman, it's still, okay, this is a man who needs to hear the gospel, who needs to repent of his sin, cling to Christ, and be redeemed in his inner person. But then that doesn't mean his tumor is going to go away. It doesn't mean his childhood upbringing is going to change. What it means, though, is now he's going to have a new person. We'll talk about this next week. The Spirit of God will now be in him so that what actually comes out of him when the tumor is influencing him or when his childhood upbringing is influencing him, will be very different. That's why I think it's important to see that that nobody has experienced a greater disparity between their righteousness 
and the unrighteousness of their parents than Jesus did. Does that make sense what I'm saying? No matter how bad our childhood upbringing is, nobody had a greater distance between their holiness and their parents' holiness than Jesus. And, and he lived in that. I mean, the idea that every time he would have been corrected, it would have been wrong. Every time. And you know he was corrected in life. You know his younger siblings told him what to do or blamed him for stuff or stuff got put on him. I mean, that was a lot of his life, right? Him getting blamed for stuff he didn't do. And so he would have lived in that world and every time it would have been wrong. And yet we just don't see in his life what always came out of him was love, faith. And that's because he was fully filled by the Spirit of God. He was without sin. So in some way with a Charles Whitman, it's okay, not to believe the gospel, these, all these temptations and influences will go away, but rather there'll now be a new orientation of heart, a new person in, inside of you that's controlling you, guiding you, leading you. So that now, rather than go shoot people, you're more likely to give money to people. <laughs> you're more likely to serve than to shoot. You're more likely to love and to, to pour yourself out for others than to harm them. Now, sin will still remain in him, but he'll be on a whole new trajectory. That's sort of the hope of the gospel. Not that it'll take away all that stuff, but it'll change that inner person so that what comes out of you with that brain tumor will be different. But it also means, I think, we have to be super gracious. So, so think about even dementia. Think about Alzheimer's. That if you've had a parent or a relative who in those final years is dying of Alzheimer's disease and has dementia, you're gonna see things coming out of them depending on who they are. Some get much sweeter, more docile, just more lethargic. Others get really, a lot of rage starts coming out, a lot of manipulation, a lot of anger, a lot of all kinds of things. And so the temptation is to think, okay, it's the dementia doing this. As opposed to, no, no, it's the dementia that's throwing the whole curtain back, where there's just stuff that's coming out that used to be inhibited. There used to be the strength to inhibit. And what that doesn't mean is that we, I think we ought to be more merciful. Because imagine if for a day, God removed all your inhibitions. Imagine for a week, if God removed all your capacity to not say what you just thought about saying. And everything you think comes out. Everything you feel just comes out. What would that look like for a week? And if we're honest about that, now as we're sitting with someone who is suffering from dementia, and just the brain is actually, cells are dying, capacity to sort of moderate and hold back what's really inside is lost, more stuff's going to come out. Stuff we didn't know is there. You may have heard the phrase before, nothing comes out of a drunk that wasn't already there. It's not that, oh, the alcohol made me. No, the, the alcohol exposed what was there. So that's another way in which we can think about, okay, the, the gospel's changing that part. But when we lose some of those outer things and just more of us comes out, that doesn't mean we ought to be more judgmental. I think we ought to be more merciful. We ought to be more patient, more prayerful. I think the point being what the Bible says, it doesn't minimize all those pieces. It just orders them in a certain way that we're meant to see, which will be what, what next week is about.